I pray you feel as blessed as I do this morning. My heart was very full as I came to stand last night over the testimonies. Brother Ben had asked that same question and gave pause, and it seemed like everybody was just quiet. And then many of you started to speak and pour out your heart and confess and ask for prayer. And, and uh, you know, that's the burden of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. A lot of people today are kind of confused about what the burden of the Lord is. Matter of fact, it's made fun of. And with the Lord's help, I want to take you back to some Old Testament scripture that talks about that a little bit. If you want to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah this morning. And this scripture gets a little bit confusing sometimes. People don't really know what it's talking about. Uh, in, in its essence, when it talks about these things. Uh, but it's, uh, it's pretty plain as we go through it. And we're in the 23rd chapter. And I'm going to try not to read this whole chapter, but all of it is very important to what we've been talking about this morning. Um, before we get into that, I, I kind of got a little confused. I normally wear a lot of red, white, and blue on Veterans Day and Labor's Day and Memorial Day because... Uh, these holidays are very important to me. I haven't had anyone I've lost uh, personally in my family that I know of in modern warfare. But I have a lot of people laying all over this country in my ancestry. Some I've had to d- go through woods to find markers for their graves during the Civil War. In the War of 1812, my family was very engaged in that, traveled all over the Midwest and the South. and some in the Revolutionary War. Some years ago, when I was coming back from Spotsylvania from the Virginia Bible history tour, I knew that my family had been in Fort Spotsylvania. I knew a little bit of history about them, but I was having trouble putting it together. A lot of it kind of falls off. You'll be more easily find a physical marker somewhere to kind of help you put it together than you will searching on the internet or trying to find a book. And I thought I was going to find his grave, one of my ancestors, Captain John Froge, somewhere around Spotsylvania. I had no luck. I finally found out he was buried in Point Pleasant Park, and I thought, well, that's got to be nearby. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> it was at the confluence of the Kanawha River and the Ohio River, which is one of the borders of West Virginia. It was originally Virginia, And I stood there on that bank after I had discovered reading memorials that the Daughters of the Revolution had built. And these were the first memorials that they put up. And there was his name. 1794. That didn't make sense. But the first battle, most historians conclude, is the first battle of the Revolutionary War was fought in 1794. I believe it was in August. And the British had come against and blackmailed and threatened five Indian tribes, and I believe Cornflower was his name, was the chief, and he led a raid against them, although he had been an ally and a friend of the Virginians for a long time. In the great battle, the story came back that my ancestors stood on that bank defending his men and died full of arrows, and he was buried on the bank of that river with four other men. I've never had such a feeling come over me as the day I was saved in 
and the day God called me to preach. A few other times since then, it became real to me, his love. He left back a Irish wife. <laughs> he was a Scottish descendant. He left back two children. The stories went that his daughter had woken the whole fort up at Fort Spotsylvania because she cried out in the middle of the night, scared everybody and her mother, saying, my daddy full of arrow. And you can believe that or not. She did it two or three times through the night. Her mother, saying of being of Irish sensibility, what is written, realized that she had seen a vision. And three days later, the news came back that he died just exactly the way she had seen it. So you look at this, why did he go out there? Well, he was a man of great wealth, but his life proved to me that he saw some vision for the United States and for the truth. He came from a long line of uh, Anabaptists called Lollards that I dated our family history. Many of them were bishops over states and so forth, and they were very close to those people fighting for the freedom of Scotland, freedom of religion. Uh, they didn't seem to be too concerned about who they were in league with. It was just following God and the contention of the truth, and they were very adamant about the freeing of the Word of God and making it available to people, and they were a very big part of the Reformation and the translation of the Bible into English and making that available to people. Now, I don't say that to boast anything. My relationship to the Lord does not come through them. I'm thankful for their life. I'm thankful for the legacy that they gave me. But my true legacy and my debt belongs to Jesus Christ and Him alone. I'm thankful that they knew Him. And by the course and action of their life, I believe they did. And I'm thankful for all of you today who say that you know the power of His name. Now, having said that, we, we've, we've got a discourse in our world today, and I love the song and the uh, attribute toward these veterans that you've given, and I love the song too, and, and it really stirred my heart. It brought me back to one of the verses that's cited out there, John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so, what does that look like? Where does that steer from? Um, you know, you look back in the history of this country and you look back in the history of the world and you see people who have a love for something greater than just themselves. They have a love for the society that they live in and the good that is there and, and the friendship and the fellowship and the support, this love that they know and, and cherish and want to see established. And yet, you know, love seems to have waxed very cold in our society today. Men are lovers of pleasure and lovers of self. The Bible said it would be that in the last days, and they would falter at the word of God. We see that. We see a lot of people unwilling to repent and unwilling to uh, change their lives and be the men and women that God has called them to do. We see children living without the example and this... Uh, quintessential truth at the core of their life of what their life is about and its purpose and the best and the best of it. We often say, well, people are very distracted today to the word of God and to worship. And I was reciting years ago, I had a cousin that reminded me of some Welsh history that we had read. 
And these Welsh miners in Wales uh, would labor 10, 12, 14-hour days uh, in their work, which was very common. And then they would come to revival services in these Welsh Baptist churches, and they would be there almost all night. They were that excited about the worship and praise of God and get two hours of sleep and go back to work. And those revivals would go on for six weeks and longer. Can you imagine the kind of love that they had for God and for the best of what was in their society? I've made mention, a lot of people talk about the good old days. No, they weren't always good. They were hard and they were difficult, but there was a love for something better. The what glued their society together and made it good and work. Folks, our society doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work to the best of us. It doesn't work to the best of our children and our community and our nation. So how do we succumb to uh, have that right spirit of truth? We've talked about voice. Brother Ben and I have just been immersed in that discussion this week with you by the leadership of God. We had no planning, no thought toward it, and God brought it to us. So it must be an important truth for us at this hour. And I believe it's not just for you and me, but for the whole world. And I pray that God will use us as instruments, and I can't believe that he's not instructing that same word to many other believers at this hour, that we would go and change the world. That first battle that my ancestor was in, he had a vision of what this country could be, what his life would be, and what it would be for his children. And God answered that in more ways than one, giving his life at an early age. And he'll do the same for you and I. Jeremiah, 23rd chapter. First verse. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And there's an exclamation point there, folks, in the King James Bible. One of the few that exist. I don't know how they translated that, but they knew it had to be exemplified in truth. Folks, we have a problem. We don't talk about it very much. We try to be polite, but the truth is, down through the ages, there have been deceivers... There have been men who were lovers of pleasure and flesh who stood behind the pulpits of God and did not espouse the truth. They have loved position. They have loved honor. They have loved their pocketbook. They have loved all the trappings of this life and used the ministry of God and mostly not the God, but the little God of this world. And it talks about the sheep of his pasture. Folks, there are people who know the Lord, are his children, and they are being subverted and enduring and allowing men who are not of God or have fallen away from the truth to lead them. And this is said, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock, ye have driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. So we cannot blame them. God turned around and looked at those flocks, and he said, I am going to let the fault of this thing fall on you. 
Take cognizance of that. You have a good pastor. I love him. Matter of fact, I was excited to come participate in his ordination here, and I got, quite shockingly, the invitation to present him. It was a little tongue-tied. But one thing I do, I did want to convey to them that he impressed me because I knew he was willing to go where the Lord wanted to send him. And he wasn't interested in the honors of men. And he made that very evident to me by the choices he was making in his life already. And we bonded very quickly because much of my life has not been going where pastors say, oh, that's the church I want to go pastor. <laughs> it's been very much the opposite. But yet, I'm not putting honor to myself. The Lord has blessed it, and I'm so thankful. As difficult as it has been sometimes, he has blessed me greatly. So the evil of your doing, saith the Lord, and I will gather the remnant of my flock, for third verse, out of all countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them together again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. So why did God scatter them? Folks, sometimes when our flock is falling apart and we wonder what's happening in our church, God is driving people out so they'll find the truth and he can regather them again. I want you to know that's happening all over this country as we speak. It's been happening for a number of years. We're seeing little uh, fledgling little churches and mostly mission works that could barely pull enough people together to stay open every Sunday. Pastors leave them and then the church would, the Lord would bring them back. A lot of that happened during the pandemic. But now people are finding them looking for this truth, this commonality. Why? Because they weren't waiting for a man to lead them. They were waiting for the Lord, all guide to instruct them in the word of God and teach them. And there's so much good information out there now by these men who have led work of reformation, who have brought us back to the bedrock of an experiential salvation experience again. And not just among Baptists, among many denominations. We think, well, it's just awful. No. Let God scatter the flocks. Let him do his work that we might be purged to the truth and work of God and a great love for him that doesn't look like the world. Fourth verse, And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. God provides for them. I can tell you, to try to stand and utter the word of God without his leadership is miserable. And sometimes God lets us do that. And yes, we'll try to teach a lesson, but we know God is not helping us the way we need him to. Do you guys ever go through that? When you're trying to be that spiritual man or woman or child and you know God's spirit is not abiding with you, it's because we're not seeking the real God. We haven't given him the throne of our life. The first, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Folks, let it not be excused that God is the one who establishes his work and his truth in the world, and we are to be obedient to it and followers of it. There are times that we uh, get a little knowledge and a little understanding and we say, well, I'm going to go build. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to lead. I'm going to correct things. And we make a big mess when we do that. If we are going to be truly spiritual people in a spiritual kingdom, in a spiritual work that God is doing in the world, we must submit us ourselves to God and be drawn by him and led by him 
against our own wisdom that he can use us to build his kingdom and exalt his truth in the world. A lot of times we say, well, I'm going to choose the church I go to. I'm going to choose the times that I worship. I'm going to choose how I worship. And I'm going to do it on my terms and my way. Doesn't work, folks. Doesn't work. We have to listen to the Spirit of God and His teaching. Now, as young Christians, I expect that somewhat. But folks, to those who have had some age and experience in the Lord, our life shouldn't look like that. It should look like we're following the Lord just as He intends for His pastors to do. You know, you might be challenged at some point in time for an untruth that would come before your congregation, and it may come from your pastor's lips. And I know Brother Ben would love for you to come and say, Brother Ben, I don't think I understand that. Matter of fact, I don't think I agree with it. And a matter of fact, if he came to, you came to with him that sincerity, I've always told my congregation, I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to pray about it, because I'm a man. I could be wrong. And I appreciate when people call me out. Sometimes they don't get my full statement, but still the fact that I made the statement and didn't qualify well enough puts me at odds. And she took me to task a little bit this week over something, and I appreciate it. I love Deborah's in the church. I love women who can come along and do the things that the men haven't done. We need that. I had women in my life who were spiritual leaders of God. They were respectful they didn't upset the apple cart, but they followed the leadership of God and created great churches. We often go, why don't we have great churches? Because the voice of God not only speaks to the pastor, it speaks to the congregation, and we are all responsible to the word of God and his spirit. So we've seen this great discourse against the pastors here, and it goes on uh, to do war with that. Uh, Seventh verse, Therefore the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say the Lord liveth, which brought up the children out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Well, who were the children of Israel? Except people who escaped the mighty uh, plight of the land of Egypt, who had been enslaved, and God removed them. Who could they be but those people? Folks, who could we be as the people of God but those saved by the Lamb of God, uh, given His blood, given to cleanse us? Who could we be other than that? And yet much of the time, our conversation, our walk in the world looks very different than the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, when the Holy Spirit exemplifies the truth of the cross and our life doesn't match up to that, our affection doesn't look up, match up to that. We've got a question to ask ourselves. Are we of God or are we just that backslidden? We dismiss it. Why? Because we listen to the voices of the world. Eighth verse, but the Lord liveth which brought me up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries whither I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. This is Jeremiah speaking. He is shaken. He is so moved and disturbed because of the thing that is going on in Israel and the lack of truth and the leadership of God. And listen to this. For the land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing, the land mourneth 
The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their force is not right. Folks, I look at the landscape of this country today, and I'm saying, where is the right force of God? Where is it dwelling? I can't see it in either political party very well. I see some glimmers of hope, but I tell you, I am disturbed. Are you? I am. I don't see the answer in a man. I see an answer in an almighty God who speaks to his people and exalts his truth and is a witness, and multiple great change occurs by the work of God. There's a lot of writing about the great awakenings in America that occurred in the 1700s and early 1800s. And it had a large effect upon the political establishment of early America in the colonies. But I want you to know they weren't as big as we think they are. Matter of fact, the one that occurred in the late 1700s, right after the Revolutionary War, maybe during, there was only a county of about 150 souls saved in a number of churches. But the stirring and movement and truth of God was so real in those people as they took it that they changed the course of this country, I'm convinced. They spoke to the leaders of this country. Jefferson came in and set in the congregation of a little Baptist church not far from Monticello. And he didn't believe that men could govern themselves. He was a little bit of an aristocrat. But as he watched this little Baptist church conduct their business in love and common purpose, he knew democracy could work. But he learned that, and he was a bit of a deist at a point, but he knew that their God and their truth held them and bonded them to a greater purpose. And when he wrote about uh, democracy and republics, he wrote about the essentialness of a moral God leading those people. Folks, do we have a great moral code written by a great God dictating our life in this country anymore? I don't think so. And the question is, is it in our life? Do we really take consciousness of whether we are thieves or liars? Do we dismiss ourselves and little sins? Folks, I'm telling you, there's a big testimony by our actions before the world when they know that we have a consciousness that we want to do nothing that would cause ridicule or slight on the name of our God. Our people used to be convicted by those things. They were convicted that the word of truth was not dwelling in them if they didn't have a relationship with their Heavenly Father, if that wasn't the essential core and being and substance and strength of their life. Everything emanated around that. Today, we have a society, including myself, judging myself, that we love our pleasures, our comforts, our desires, our favorite foods, and we get to choose the job we want. Boy, we've been given a lot of opportunity, haven't we? How our forefathers would have loved to have some of those choices. And I hope and I believe they would have used them better. I can't say. 11th verse, for both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. Wherefore their ways shall be unto them as a slippery ways in darkness. They shall be driven on and fall therein. For I will bring evil upon them, even 
the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. Do you believe that God can convict and chastise the hearts of evil men? Now, I know we think, well, we're, we're, Brother Steve, we're having a hard time seeing the ones that we love get under conviction and visited by God. But folks, maybe we're not praying for all the people we need to be praying for. Maybe we've got too much skin in the game about who we want to love and who we want to see saved. The Lord has promised that he will preserve our houses if we do his work, if we follow him. When was the last time you wrote a letter to one of your state representatives and wrote a prayer to him? Or talked to him about the immorality of our world and how it's affecting your children and your community? When was the last time that you went out and voiced a concern in your local paper or at a township meeting or a city board meeting? We say, well, Brother Steve, it doesn't make any difference. They don't listen to us anymore. They go behind closed doors and they enact all their business and then they make announcements. But they let us speak, but it's just a formality. Folks, the voice of God is greater than ours. He can speak. He can speak in your home. Father, mother, if you say my home is falling apart, I don't know how to pull it together. Dwell in the word of God and dwell in him and watch him transform the truth in your life to be evidence to your family, your spouses, your loved ones. Because he will and he can. 13th verse, and I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They have prophesied in Baal and caused, listen to this, my people Israel to err. Folks, we have to identify where the voices are in our life that are challenging us. We go, well, it's just a movie. It's a producer. No, it's someone that doesn't follow after the word of God, and he only cares about profiting himself, and he wants to enslave you by evil communication that distracts you and pulls you away from the Word of God and His truth. The real work that we have in our life. There is more joy in serving the Lord in one day there is a thousand years in the pleasure of this world. Do you believe that? I do. There isn't very many things that I remember that I have went out and done for my pleasure. Uh, matter of fact, we have to keep photographs and we have to keep journals to remember a lot of those events. They just don't really stir in our vine. But those things I have seen in the Lord and experienced, they live with me. When I begin recollecting and looking over my life, it's my brothers and sisters in the Lord who have meant a lot to me, who have blessed me in their service to God, uh, that have shaped and formed my life, that have... Uh, been a great servants and examples before me. I think about those things. They're precious to me. And I believe the same is true for you. For even many who do not know the Lord and have resisted him and not, there's been sainted people in your life that have been a blessing to you. I had a, my grandmother and grandfather, they had some son-in-laws that weren't such good guys. But you know what? They loved them. And they were a witness to them. And they loved and would do anything for my grandparents anything, even after they divorced my aunts and had a respect and love for them. And although my grandparents could have been very mad at them over a lot of things, the work that God had put in their heart toward them prevailed. It changed their lives. I don't know there was one of them before that he died that didn't profess that he knew the Lord. They were broken men. They were shattered men. But these witnesses are true. 
15 verse, you say, what is God going to do with them? Look what he says here. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is the profaneness gone forth into all the land. Folks, God knows how to shut their mouth. He knows how to make them eat the evil that they espouse. So it is no longer pleasant to them. I want you to think, if God would start to do that in our society today, so it wasn't even palpable for them to dwell upon these things, how quickly would our country change? How quickly? This was a prophet sent to Israel proclaiming the word of God and what the word of God would look like if the people dwelt in it. We've talked about the voice of God. Uh, Last night, my message, I think we titled it, When Heaven Breaks Its Silence. Folks, I have confidence, and I believe, and I desire that God pour out his word and his truth and his glory in such a way that it has an impactful uh, evidence upon our churches, our families, and our communities. You know, when great revival started in this land, it started like this. There was no such thing as revival meetings. There was no such thing as effort meetings that we had read about in history so much. And how it kind of came about, the Word of God started dwelling so richly in His saints and the witness and God speaking into the community and the spirit of it, that all of a sudden, these Christians in the community and their business and their workplace and education had people coming to them and coming to their churches wanting to know more after God. And it consumed them. They were coming to their homes and wanting to know more. And they thought, well, there's so many of them. Let's just unite at the church house. Let's unite at our house and and have an effort meeting. Let's talk to them and pray with them and instruct them in the word of God. And that became every night of the week. And before long, great revival broke out in the land as these people were saved and they were going out and witnessing the society. Baptists weren't a great number of people in this country nor were most of those congregations that didn't add works to the work of salvation. There were saved people among them, I have no doubt. But things started to shift. And that proclamation in driving drove one of the greatest expansions this country has ever known. We often think, well, the expansion for land in the West, the expansion for wealth. But folks, there was a driving of the word of God that men went out and they carried that gospel in the wilderness. They, uh, they shared it with every place they could. There's a great book uh, called the, the American Frontier. I saw it in there in Brother Ben's office. It's one that was recommended to me years ago and sent to me and I recommend it to a lot of the people. It was originally called Ten Baptist Churches. It was a man by the name of John Taylor who left Virginia. Uh, he didn't have much. He came from a, a formal church background in Virginia. Episcopalian church, his family warning to not go listen to those Baptists. That was said many times over and over in early history. He was warned that he'd get a whooping if they found out he did it. He was a man of some prominence in his family, not a lot. 
But he and his buddies would go out running, as most teenagers do. He was about 15 years, and one of the things I liked to do, the Baptists would hold their baptismal meetings. That's what they called them. They just didn't go out and dunk them. They had a preaching and praying and testifying and a little shouting, and, and they worshiped God, and they baptized those people as a witness to the world of the change that had occurred in their life. And as a preaching of that gospel, this young man was knew that, and his friends were bidding, we got to get out of here. If they find out we've been here, we'll be in trouble. But he had to listen. He had to listen and see. And it marked his life. And some days later, while he was in school and he was supposed to be in studying, he got in such, and he made fun of them. And he, he, he mocked them. And he just thought it was ridiculous by the bias that he had been taught. And yet that word of God was beating him so much that he couldn't even study his lessons at night. And way in the night, he'd be struggling to finish them and could not complete them. That went on for a little bit of time. But one day, he went out in the woods trying to hunt or do something, and he found himself falling for a great bluff in front of him, and it was like he had come to the end of the road with his conversation with God. And he surrendered himself under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and God saved him. When he told his family what had happened, they were very angry that he had refuted their God. He had an uncle who was a Baptist, a very wealthy man. Uh, his sons had led kind of strong, hard lives, I guess, but anyways, they had lost and God had called him to preach some time after that, after he finished his education, he was young. God started speaking about him going into Kentucky and doing mission work. He'd preached about everywhere he could, but this drawing kept coming to him. He kept praying about the provision to be able to do that. He didn't know how it was possible. It sounded like the conversation Moses had with God when he told him to go get his people. God provided him a wife. They got married. And then he got a call one day to come after his uncle had passed away and said, your uncle has left you his whole estate because he knows you'll use it to the advancement of the gospel. And he knew his family had forsaken him. He took that effort and he became a wilderness preacher. He rode out on cars. He would come to a cabin in the middle of nowhere, Indian Territory in Kentucky, and he would uh, talk to them and, and ask to spend the night there, which was common, and he would start sharing the truth of God with them. And the people would get under conviction. They would say, well, can you stay? Can you preach more to us? We want to know more about uh, this God and this work of salvation. Folks, that's what the advancement of the truth looks like in our life. We've forgotten what it looks like. And then they would say, well... Um, and he would drive around the area and find more and ask him if it was okay, and he'd bring them all to that house. And if it was winter, they would sit in the house or they may have an outdoor meeting. But one by one in those little settlements that he would go around, people were saved, and then churches were formed in the wilderness. And he was instrumental in 10 churches in his life that he helped develop throughout Kentucky. He developed land and communities as he went along the way, had a large family. Folks, this is what Christianity has looked like, not just in America, but around the world through the ages. How many churches do we have planted in America today 
that have those kind of beginnings. Not very many. Not very many. I want to advance as quickly as I can through the rest of this and bring the truth that the Lord delivered to my heart. We drop on down and... Uh, uh, 25th verse. I have heard what the prophets said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed and I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor. As their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal, the prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Folks, we have to identify what is chaff, what is worthless, and what is the word of God. You know, I listen to some people trying to preach a gospel message or a, just a message of truth in this country, and it doesn't resemble anything in this word to me anymore. It is a fantasy. It is a dream. It's a reflection of the evil heart of men and their desires. Uh, this prosperity gospel that has become so common in America, and they keep repackaging it and re-identifying it so it doesn't sound like a prosperity gospel, but it's telling you if you are not profiting in your life, if everything is not prospering, then you are not following the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wrong. The prospering of the prophet of this world, yes, God can bless us in many things, but that is not the cornerstone heritage of the Word of God. It is not. And we can say a lot about that, but we're going to move in. 29th verse, is not my word like as a fire? Folks, do you know the burning Word of God, how it uh, is like a coal that you lay it upon you, and it burns and burns and burns through till it finally burns through the whole substance that it sits on? It has been concentrated to do something that just a mere fire will not. It is a burning coal. Is my word not like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? And therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words every one from his neighbor. How many words of God have been stolen from your life because you gave credibility of something that wasn't true wasn't right that tickled your ears at the moment. Behold, I'm against, uh, excuse me, 32nd verse. Oh, no, wait. Behold, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Folks, before anyone proclaims what the Lord says, you make sure he's of the Lord. What his mission and purpose is. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and to tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their likeness. And yet I sent them not nor commanded them, and therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. You know, I love the account about Brother Ben came here, and I've heard several of you mention it this week. Him and Sister Amy looking for a place to worship, a place for their family. Earnest, there's no doubt the Spirit of God led them here. And I love the account, if I remember it right, that you had a previous very beloved pastor who said in as an earn-term pastor, and he couldn't continue with you, but he told you, don't look for a pastor. 
God is going to send you one. I love that man because he was concerned for you. He wanted you to have the truth. He wanted this flock to have a true pastor that fed the people the word of God. And instead of him doing it at the might of his hand, he trusted his God to do it. And he will. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them, and therefore they shall not profit this people all, saith the Lord. And when the people, or the prophet, or a priest, shall ask thee, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? And here's what I want you to get. If you don't remember anything else today I said, I want you to get this. These men who ridiculed the truth that Jeremiah preached, this everything that we've preached this week about this spiritual work of God in our life, that it's not of our hand, but it's by the Spirit of God, by His Word, by His truth. It is spoken from heaven. It has sustained the people of God through the ages. It's what must go forward. It is the work of God. Folks, that is the burden of the Lord. Why is it called the burden of the Lord? Or why did they call it that? Because that's what Jeremiah kept speaking about. The voice of God leading his people, not being led astray, uh, conforming to the witness of God in their life and the evidence of it. And they mocked it. Well, what is this burden of the Lord you're always talking about? Well, when you talk to others who want to talk about spiritual people, spiritual churches who believe in the work of Jesus Christ, who believe in a uh, wondrous God who does unexplainable things, remarkable things, miracles, and we express our salvation of being a work of the miracle of God in us. You know they laugh at us. That's not necessary. You don't need that. You don't really know how much they really do mock us. I'll tell you what, you go on to a lot of seminaries and Bible colleges today, and there are thousands of professors mocking the experience with God. Folks, we're in a battle. We've been in a battle, and we've always been in a battle. And that needs to ring core in our life. As much as we love our country and we love those who have sacrificed, the real work is a spiritual work. The real battle is a spiritual battle. And I want to tell you something. Those who speak against the work of God and do not love it, they want to destroy your home, your children, and everything you love that God has given and blessed you with. They don't have an affection for you. I can tell you that as these prophets of Baal who mocked the word of God did. You say, well, Brother Steve, they use the name Jesus. They use the name God. Well, I'm going to tell you, you sit with them for a while and they'll destroy everything that God proclaims that is real that he has done. They redact it and they say, well, you know, this was rewritten at this point saying, I've taken those courses. It's hard to sit under them. There was a little value in it, but the great value to me was to see the prophets of Baal at work in this country, even among our great, supposedly, spiritual institutions. Did you know Yale and Harvard were originally started as seminaries for young, Bab- or young preachers trying to learn to preach? And because Baptists were small and not very wealthy at the time, that a lot of our preachers, earnest and understanding, have a better education, were sent to those institutions? 
But let me tell you, they were far different at that date and time than they are today. Far different. You know, we say we want our children to uh, have great uh, college educations, but folks, let's be fearful of what they're subjected to when they get there. And if they go there, let's pray and work to the establishment of truth in their life in good school systems and among a good church so that when they hear a lie and a dream and something that is apostasy to the word of God, they identify it, mark it, and sponge it from their knowledge and understanding. We need that. But if they don't see us doing it in our life, how do they know what the battle is? How do they know what the battle is? I know this message is hard, and it's a little bit deep this morning, but I have confidence that you people can take this up. And some of you all might be choking on it this morning. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Because you need it. I believe this is what your pastor is trying to teach you. I might be a little bit more plain than he is sometimes. I've been down the road a little longer like some of you. For as much as I've battled to try to change this, I feel like I'm losing the battle. I feel discouraged sometimes like the prophets did. But I know the mightiness of my God. And those who've heard my testimonies, and I've heard yours this week, we know the emboldenment of our God to move on our behalf and use us. We know it. This is what Jeremiah wanted for the people of God so badly. The God that moved in his life and on the previous generations of Israel. I pray that we see a great flame go forth from the people of God and his congregations in this world. And we may be small, we may seem like we're losing, but our God is mighty. He is mighty to proclaim and do his good work in the earth. I'm encouraged by this congregation. I'm encouraged by the people I've seen come visit and be in this revival. I'm encouraged by some things that I see God doing. You be encouraged too. You know, I've heard comment about this church is the way our church used to be by some people who visit here. This is the way it used to be. Folks, I'm going to tell you this is the way it ought to be. This is the way it still should be. And if we're going to see a reclaiming of the work and witness of God in this country and a resurgence of our churches, doesn't matter what handle you put on it, it takes God and a people who identify him and put him before everything else who love him and desire him and will follow him. Thirty-third verse again. And when this people or the prophet or a priest shall ask thee, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? Thou shalt say then unto them, What burdened? I will even forsake you, saith the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people that shall say the burden of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his name. So he's talking about all those who mock. All those that mock. Thus say, shall ye say, every one to his neighbor and every one to his brother, What hath the Lord answered? And what hath the Lord spoken? So what does that mean? Us, we are, to ask people, what is it that God has commanded? What is it he has said? What is the truth? Don't let them turn the table on you. You come back in the empowerment and confidence of God's word and ask them what God has said. You know what? They don't want to say that. Any battle I've ever been in, I never ever let them lead the conversation of what truth is. Why? Because the truth is the truth and the power of it is sufficient to what he sends it to. 
It won't be my might or my strength or yours, but the proclamation of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit promises He'll testify of, and He will put that worm word in their mouth. He will put the gall in their body, and He will begin to work. And if they will not turn to it, He will destroy their influence. Folks, I've seen it. I've seen it. And He will do it. What about in your personal life? No different. Among your children, no different. Among your spouses, no different. He will. He will. 36. And the burden of the Lord shall be, shall ye mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden. <laughs> for ye have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts, our God. What does that mean? Folks, what you and I say become our responsibility. It becomes our responsibility before the Lord. And so when we talk about the burden of the Lord, we're answerable to a God who wants to know what we say and what we believe and what we think. Do you feel that way today? Well, I'm going to put you on notice. You are. You are. I don't think there are many of you probably refuted what Brother Ben teaches. But he asked you today, what are we going to do with it? See, what we really believe, we act on. And what we kind of think, well, that's a good idea, but that's a good philosophy. But folks, the Word of God is not a philosophy. It's not any of those things. It works against all those things. All those things of the world, all that thought process, all that education, it tears it down and breaks it apart and stands on its own. And that's the way we're to act and believe and move in our life. Thus saith thou to the prophet, What hath the Lord answered thee, and what hath the Lord spoken? So again, now it goes not just to the person, but to the prophet. We'll say, Well, Brother Steve, I don't know that I could do that. Well, why not? <laughs> why not? The God Almighty lives in you, and that truth of the Word lives in you. And when a prophet comes to you and tries to deceive you or say something, you can ask him, What does the Lord say? And quote back to the scripture he's probably just as familiar with as you are because he spent a lot of time trying to tear it down, break it apart, and make it mean something else or dismiss the truth of it. Or he may even espouse that it is true and not know yet the power of God in that truth. And so therefore he's just going through the function and process of it and say, well, it doesn't really work, but it sounds good and the people seem to like it and it's what they want, but they don't really believe in the word of God. And sometimes we're that way. We come in the house of God and we go, yeah, I, I know he's a, he's a good God and he's a mighty God, but we're not believing it. We're not feeling it. We're not living that. Sometimes us pastors are guilty of that too. Just to be honest with you, folks, this is a fight. It is a battle. It is a struggle. It is a burden of the Lord that we carry. I've grown up with that word my whole life. I have a burden. I have something. We've talked about the great might and weight of God's Spirit and as the sisters. And he asked the Lord, Ben asked you, what will you do with this? What is it that we need to do at this point in time? And some of you sisters answered, can we just pray? We came down here and had a very powerful, I saw many broken as I was before the Lord, asking for him to answer our petition before him and acknowledge his truth before us. That's a burden. We carry that when we get up in the morning. We carry it through the day. We carry it when we go to bed at night. It transforms and changes his people to the course and work of God. It is mighty. 
that is great. There's several scriptures I wanted to get to, but I just wanted to bring you to one. It's precious to me. I may have mentioned it this week already. It wasn't long ago I preached it at my church. My grandmother, Annie Thompson, she didn't say a whole lot. She doubted a lot of things, but I loved her. I want to share with you what her favorite verse in scripture was, because it expresses the burden of the Lord. It expresses her responsibility to an almighty God for what she thinks and what she says and how she carries herself in the world. Psalm 1914, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my righteousness. Folks, that expresses the burden of the Lord, and to me in my mind, as good as any scripture in the Bible. That seems very modest and very humble. But folks, as we present ourselves before God and we are concerned about our thought and our action and our mouth before him, breathing the things that are pleasing to him to those around us and are humbled in it, that is the most beautiful picture of love toward God and to others around us. These that gave their life For this country. No doubt that was the process of their mind as they went through the trials and the troubles and the fears that they knew anything else before you and maybe looking like a coward to others. And as it's been said, there's no atheists in foxholes. I've heard that for many people in battle. They knew they were accountable to God more than anything. If you do not know the Lord today and God's been dealing with you, make yourself accountable to God. Make the first steps of seeking him. He says, those who seek him shall find him. For those of us who are struggling and maybe have been, gotten cold in our Christianity and our, our walk, and I, I heard a song the other day, an old, old one. I think it was by, well, anyways, doesn't matter who it was about, but it, it, it's called Cold, Cold Heart. That was one of the big lines in it. And I got thinking, yeah, Lord, I have a cold, cold heart a lot of times. And it blamed it on his girlfriend or his love interest in this love song, but it's me. It's me that's made a cold, cold heart. I've chosen that path. God bless you today. Put it in.